0: Let me read for us God's words. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness if then your whole body is full of light having no part dark it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light while Jesus was speaking a Pharisee asked him to dine with him so he went in and reclined at table The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues, And greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say.
1: Well, thank you very much. And please do uh, keep that reading open in front of you. You will have noticed it's a, a long reading and um, a challenging, serious reading. Um, so please do keep it in front of you to help you with following along. And um, if you don't know me yet, my name is Roger. I'm one of the ministers here and I'd love to get to know you. Do come and say hello if you're new around um, Chalmers. But if you're new to church more generally, I guess a reading like that might have been quite a shock. I mean, Jesus doesn't pull any punches in this passage. Striking, isn't it? Jesus, gentle Jesus, loving, kind Jesus, is calling people evil? Calling them fools? Pronouncing woe? Pronouncing judgment on people? It's quite a shock. It's even quite a shock in Luke. We've seen in Luke that Jesus is compassionate, kind. He, he loves the most vulnerable in society. The people that everyone else walks past, he cares about. He even describes his mission as coming to preach good news to the needy. And now the most loving man who's ever lived is warning of judgment and woe. So what's going on? Why is Jesus so deadly serious in this passage? Let's pray for God's help as we try and understand what's going on here. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray quite simply that you would turn the lights on this morning. Pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see Jesus for who he really is. Please help me not to distort the light as I speak. Please help all of us not to distort the light as we listen. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to know what's going on or where we're headed this, this morning, there is a handout and the service, sermon outline is on the back of it. You'll see we're, the big topic is kind of thinking about Jesus' opponents today. Why do people reject Jesus? And of course, many do. Many did then, many do now. And that rejection comes in a whole variety of flavors. I mean, in Scotland today, to be honest, loads of people reject Jesus because they've never actually met him, never heard anything he says just don't know about Jesus, or at least don't know about the real Jesus, the unfiltered, non-airbrushed Jesus. that's actually there in the um, accurate history of the Bible, rather than the selective um, edited version from the media or school RE. And God's loving solution to people who haven't even heard about him is to send the church out with the good news. Remember a couple of weeks ago, back in Luke 10, Jesus said this, the harvest is plentiful, The workers are few. That's chapter 10, verse 2. And so pray that more of us Christians would go out with the good news and share it. But we also saw in chapter 10 that when we go out, there'll be mixed reactions. We'll meet with many who reject Jesus and his message. In fact, Jesus described it as going out like lambs amongst wolves. He said, look, be prepared that if they reject you, it's because they reject me. And we know that's as true today in our offices and school gates and sports clubs and friendships groups and politics and media. It's as true today as it was back then. In fact, it's, it's actually true any given Sunday. We love the fact there are people always listening into to Chalmers, whether here or online, who, who are just curious about Jesus, not yet following him. But sometimes there comes a refusal to follow him. Sometimes people are listening for for years, decades, and never actually bowing the knee to trust him for forgiveness, to live with him as king. So why is it that so many reject Jesus, that rejection comes in so many flavours? Well, that's what Luke 11, uh, this chapter, is covering. And we, we started this last week, and this week we're kind of carrying on looking at the opponents of Jesus. It's striking that Jesus had opposition even when he was doing miracles and teaching like no one else and loving the marginalized like no one else. Even then there was rejection. And we're going to see Jesus see through his opponents with a kind of x-ray clarity. His penetrating analysis will be sobering to listen to. Now, if you're not following Jesus, I, I think that will be a challenge. But Actually, the primary purpose of this chapter as often in Luke, is to give us certainty as Christians, actually. It's to equip us about the things we've been taught. Partly, I think, because we need to not be surprised when opposition comes and by the flavours it comes in. And we need to not be thrown by that, need not to be fooled by some of the criticisms that Jesus faces, both back then and today. actually one of the things we've had to um, explain to our daughter she's quite young just five early days in primary school all sorts of things she's learning about relating to other people but one of the the biggest puzzles for her has been the fact that so many people don't know Jesus and don't want to know and we explain it's actually similar with the parents as we chat often if you bring him up there's a reluctance a pushback grace doesn't understand that because everything she's heard and knows about Jesus is that he's wonderful. She doesn't know much, obviously, but from what she's seen in the Bible, she knows that Jesus is loving, kind, strong, safe, wise, that Jesus has power to fix things that no one else can, that Jesus means we can be forgiven because he loves us and loves us enough to die for us, that Jesus came to save us. I mean, why wouldn't you want to know someone like that? So why do people push him away? Let's have a look at Jesus' analysis. We're going to see uh, three different groups of opponents he faced uh, in this reading. The skeptics, the saints, and the scholars. And it is, I think, really encouraging and helpful as a Christian to know that Jesus has faced all this before. That video we watched where we had to cut the YouTube feed, that country is not the first country to oppose Jesus. Persecution didn't begin then. It it didn't begin in secular Scotland when so many people uh, don't think twice about what Jesus teaches in the Bible. It didn't even begin in in the waves of persecution that run through global church history. No, it began when Jesus was walking the earth as he did these amazing miracles and teaching. So let's just uh, look back to chapter 11 verse 14 very briefly. Chapter 11 verse 14, this is where the, the first scene kicks off. We looked at this last week. Uh, Jesus performs a miracle in chapter 11, verse 14. Page 869. Always good to hear pages turn, thank you. Verse 14 of chapter 11. Uh, there was a mute man possessed by a demon, uh, and Jesus heals him. Casts out the demon. And verse 14, of course, the people are marvelling. But notice verse 15. Immediately some negative reactions begin. So some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. It's pretty striking there'd be any negative reactions, to be honest, given what Jesus has just done. He's just shown amazing power, and he's used it to free this man, to set him free. But nevertheless, opposition comes, and it comes in multiple flavors. So the first group, which we looked at last week with Jay, the first group, they know they can't deny Jesus' power. They've just seen it witnessed firsthand. And so they say the power must come from an evil source. And last week we saw how ridiculous that argument is. Jesus is defeating Satan, not working for him. But the second group, the verse 16 group, well, that's the group that, that we're starting with in our passage today. These people are seeking another sign. They think that, that miracle isn't enough. We need another sign, a sign from heaven. I mean... <laughs> Given Jesus by this point in Luke has already healed people multiply, raised the dead, calmed a storm, cast out multiple demons, including in front of their eyes, it's actually hard to know what would satisfy them. Luke tells us in verse 16, their motive isn't sincere, they're trying to test him. So this skepticism is a kind of unending, ceaseless, excessive skepticism. We're not ready to follow you, Jesus, or listen to you until you give us more and more and more miraculous evidence exactly on our terms. You, hear, you do hear that attitude today, actually. Um, have you heard that? The, I don't know. I, I believe in Jesus if he wrote his name in the clouds every day this week. Oh, but he didn't, so don't have to. I believe in Jesus if he raised a dead person right in front of me. Then I'll believe. Well, let's turn to verse 29, which is where Jesus uh, responds to this group, the skeptics, demanding more miracles And it's fair to say Jesus is no more impressed with their opposition to him than he was with the satanic accusation last week. So just look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. It's quite a strong pushback, that, isn't it? Jesus is calling his audience an evil generation for continually seeking signs, yet more signs from him. It's not flattering, that, calling them evil doesn't go down well today, certainly. I still remember I gave a talk at a Cambridge College and there was a student there who heard it and was afterwards just a bit incensed and absolutely convinced that Jesus would never call anyone evil, even though multiple historical accounts in the Bible say he did. It's striking isn't it? as human beings, I think especially since the Enlightenment, as human beings we like to think of ourselves as fundamentally good and pretty accurate when it comes to judging truth. I think as scientific progress has increased, we've kind of fooled ourselves that in every area we're objective, unbiased, morally neutral when it comes to the big truth questions. But Jesus' analysis is really different to that. He says, actually, there's something deeply wrong with us, deeply wrong with the people gathered around him, opposing him. He wants to show these sceptics that their refusal to follow him is not a morally neutral thing. They're endlessly seeking more and more proof is just a way of deferring endlessly the call to obey Jesus. And that comes, he says, from a place of evil. It's pretty shocking, that. And actually, the conversation gets more shocking for them because Jesus then compares, contrasts what they're doing with how the Ninevites reacted to the prophet Jonah's preaching or actually, how Queen of Sheba reacted to King Solomon's teaching. And again, this is not a flattering comparison. See, uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, uh, the folk there were worshipping pagan gods and were notoriously violent. This crowd Jesus is speaking to would have thought themselves better than that. But when God sent them Jonah as a preacher to call them to turn around and seek his forgiveness before it was too late, well, they listened. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm a bigger preacher than Jonah. So to reject me is far more serious. How is, Jonah, sorry, how is Jesus greater than Jonah? Well, for a start, Jonah was just one of a line of prophets. Whereas Jesus is the greatest prophet, the last word, the end of the line. Secondly, Jonah arrived in Nineveh through a miraculous sign. That's there in verse 29 and verse 30. Jesus says this generation will witness a kind of upgraded version of the sign of Jonah. So what was the sign of Jonah? Well, if you know the story, when Jonah turned up to preach in Nineveh, he must have absolutely stank. Why? Because he'd basically been dead and buried in a fish stomach for three days, stewing in the acid. (laughs) That is to say... God went to an extreme, miraculous length to kind of pull Jonah out of a near-death experience to get him on his feet again, preaching in Nineveh. And Jesus says a parallel sign is going to happen with him, but a greater version. What he's talking about there is his death and resurrection, his actual death, and him being in the grave for three days, in the ground, and then coming back to life later. So then, Mr. or Miss or Mrs. Skeptic Is that enough of a sign for you? You who seek a sign, you who say, if only God raised someone from the dead, then I'd believe. Well, God will call their bluff in this generation. God will authenticate his son, his preacher, by actually coming back from the dead. Not a near-death experience like Jonah, but an actual death experience. Is that enough of a miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, to turn you around? Or is the real issue not actually about proof? Is it really that you will not turn and follow Jesus, however much evidence gets put before your eyes? Striking, actually, when you look through the the books of um, celebrity atheists, uh, like uh, uh, Richard Dawkins' God Delusion, take that one, one of the striking features is how little engagement there is with the historical accounts of Jesus Christ and particularly the eyewitness accounts of his, around his resurrection, the empty tomb, the, the clear death, and then the sightings afterwards. It's almost as if the evidence that God has provided generously is kind of disregarded, it's kind of pushed under the carpet, and then God is expected to jump through the hoops that we set up, whether they're um, <laughs> empirical materialism hoops or something else. And I think it's that unwarranted skepticism, that never-ending, endless skepticism. That's why Jesus says the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will condemn this generation who witnessed Jesus in the flesh. Because when God sent the Ninevites a preacher from a near-death experience to warn them of impending judgment, they took it seriously. Yet here he's sending his own son, greater preacher, working greater miracles, with greater authentication when he rises from the dead, And they'll still reject, not because of no evidence then, but in the face of the evidence. You see, it is a moral refusal, therefore a culpable moral refusal. That's why Jesus calls it an evil refusal to accept the truth. And of course, it couldn't, be, it couldn't be further from the Queen of Sheba, could it? I mean, she was actually hungry to hear the teaching of God's king. She, she heard that Solomon was, was teaching with unparalleled wisdom. It was on offer. And so she traveled to him to find out more. Like Mary two weeks ago, she sat at the feet of the king to listen. And again, Solomon, he's just one of the kings, just one of the line. But Jesus is the ultimate king, the end of the line. The Messiah king the whole Bible pointed to. So how could they not respond to him? That's why the stakes are high. That's why Jesus is being pretty blunt. This is actually coming from a place of love. He's warning them in love, saying, wake up, stop twisting the evidence. Stop ignoring what's happening in front of your eyes. Accept my call to turn before it's too late. It's a kind of, can't you see what's in front of you? And actually, that issue of sight is where he goes next in verses 33 to 36. Because these people are in real danger of shutting out the light and so shutting themselves into darkness. The principle is there in verse 33. You have a blackout in um, Edinburgh. And uh, what do you do? Well, you try and find a torch or a lamp or a candle or something. But then once you've got a light going, you don't put it under the table or under the chair or into the cellar. You get it up high so everyone can see. And I think Jesus, in verse 33, is talking here about himself initially. Uh, In Luke chapters 1 and 2, Jesus was described as the light bursting into the world, breaking into the darkness like a sunrise. And of course, he's not hiding, is he? He's not doing his ministry in some back corner. He's out in public teaching and, and working miracles. I've just witnessed one. So Jesus, verse 33, is the light shining. But verse 34, he begins to issue a warning about our perception. So verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. The point is, Jesus is shining right in front of them. If their eyes were healthy, spiritually, they could perceive what was going on. But the danger is they're going to miss out on their lives being transformed because they will not see the light. So here's an illustration. Um, I know it's not bite-sized, but I figured it's heavy stuff today, and this will hopefully help us. Um, So imagine this is a human life, okay? Um, Sorry, it's a bit crunched. It got... um, Squashed in my bag. Um, Now, imagine that the light is blazing. So we've got some big spotlights up there. Jesus is blazing in front of them. But the reality is there's something in between, the eye. And if the eye is working, if they're seeing Jesus properly, well, then the entire life floods with light. If you accept Jesus, if if you see what he offers, submit to him, listen to him, the whole life gets filled with light. But the reality is... They will not have the light, blocking it. And I know the lights in here aren't off, but that's a dark life, he warns. Verse 35, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. And actually, if you want to know what what does that actually look like in practice, well, every example of opposition in Luke 11 is an example of this. People refusing to see, shutting themselves into darkness. So last week with Jay, That suggestion that Jesus would be working on the side of evil when he's just defeated some evil doesn't make any sense. It's just illogical. It's burying the light. This week, so far, this suggestion that having just done a miraculous sign, that Jesus needs to do another miraculous sign, or else we're not going to follow, doesn't make any sense. Refusing to let the light in. And we've got two more. Before we close, uh, as G- Jesus goes to a dinner party and meets the saints and the scholars, two more examples of bad spiritual eyesight, refusing to let the light in. So let's get on to um, verse 37 onwards and point to the saints thinking they're clean in God's sight. We'll do these more briefly. Now, we might think, oh, it's kind of nice that the Pharisees are having Jesus around for dinner, but actually we know already that they're trying to trap him in Luke and the lawyers are kind of forming a conspiracy, so it's not exactly a friendly invite. And it doesn't take long for their hackles to rise. Barely have they filed past the hand sanitizing station, which they use not, obviously it's pre-COVID, they're using it for ritual cleanness before they eat. They've all filed past and Jesus just walks past. He's failing to hit the mark of what they consider being appropriately clean for God. So we're saying that God's law to Israel in the Old Testament, it it does not require ritual washing before eating. That's something the Pharisees have added. Something they'd added, presumably to help ensure they were clean and possibly to express that they were clean before God. And so it is a huge shock, verse 38, when Jesus just doesn't bother. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus doesn't wait for the fish course. He just dives in to challenge the reaction. You see, they may think they're clean in God's sight with all of their ritual practices. And other people may think they're clean in God's sight, may look up to them as the spiritually pure. But God is not fooled. Man looks on the outside, God looks at the hearts. And so Jesus turns the light on them to point out that things in there are pretty dark, filthy in fact, verse 39. The Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Jesus sees through them and sees total hypocrisy. They're making a show of being clean whilst filthy inside. And so he says in verse 40, you fools. Now that may sound like Jesus is just being rude, I think he's picked that word pretty carefully. See, in the Old Testament, the fool was someone who would not fear God. Who does not recognise that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Who does not realise that only by fearing God can I rightly know myself and where I stand. And that's precisely what's going on here. When they look in the mirror, their spiritual eyesight is deeply flawed. After all, Jesus points out, like, God didn't just make our hands, He made our hearts, our insides, our thoughts, our desires. Our love needs to be clean, not just our skin. In fact, what's the big command? The center of the law love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That is the bar, not make sure you wash every time you eat. And so, as Jesus puts it, verse 41, give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything's clean for you. Jesus himself doesn't need to wash his hands to be clean before God, because at the deepest level, his heart is clean. It's full of love for his father and for others. But these religious legions, verse 42, lack the love of God. They neglect it, even as they spend lots of time and attention ticking the boxes when it comes to giving 10% of their income or whatever else. Striking, actually, they, they, they sweat the small stuff, he says. They tick the spiritual ch- checklist uh, and actually, verse 43, they love the kind of social and community respect that comes from being an upstanding, moral, admired member of society. I love being known as one of the good guys. But all the while, God says, Whoa, 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 which is the cry of judgment Isaiah issued to the leaders of his day and now Jesus issues to the leaders of his day. Let me just say that this attitude can be found all over this city and our society today. It might not wear the same cultural clothing as this, might not be people tithing the spice rack anymore, but the city is full of people assuming God will basically be happy with them based on a moral checklist that they themselves have written. Churches can be full of that attitude. It might be financial giving. I give to charity. I give to church at Christmas. I joined a Kickstarter page or a GoFundMe. Uh, I once bought a beggar a coffee. I, look, I'm a, I'm a generous person. At least some of the time. God must be pleased with that. It could be religious adherence, whether it's trying your best with the five pillars of Islam or ticking the box with attending mass and christenings or, or making offerings to the ancestors. It might be doing good, kind deeds, helping out with a homeless shelter, volunteering to help with efforts to recover from COVID. It might be making an effort in the ethical hot potatoes of the day. So in light of COP26, it might be doing my bit for the environment. Eating less meat, recycling more, avoiding plastic, travelling by bike or bus. And don't get me wrong, some of those things are really good things to do. But actually so were most of the things the Pharisees were doing. <laughs> Did you notice that? Verse 42. Jesus says, You tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God... These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See what he's saying? He's saying, look, the point is, it's not that you weren't doing some good things, a few good things. It's that those few good things fooled you into thinking you were clean enough for God when the big stuff is way off. Fooled into thinking some outward public acts of service were enough to mask the fact that on the inside I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. In other words, their spiritual eyesight was terrible. (laughs) There they were thinking Jesus wasn't clean, when actually not realising God sees right through them to see they're filthy on the inside. They needed Jesus to provide them forgiveness and, and cleaning. But instead, they refuse him. By the end of the chapter, they're trying to trap him. That's why they're in so much danger. That's why Jesus is being blunt. And it means they're dangerous to others. Do you notice the last thing he says to the Pharisees, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. It's another picture of being clean or unclean. So in God's law, contact with a dead body made someone unclean. And, And so graves were marked so that people could avoid falling into them and becoming unclean. But Jesus says the Pharisees are like an unmarked grave. They're, they're so dangerous because they look fine on the outside, seem great, maybe even seem helpful. But uncleanness and death lies that way. This is blunt, but Jesus would say the same thing today about any moral or religious system that turns its back on Him, that it turns its back on the God of the Bible, His standards the requirements of his law and the saviour that he's provided to provide forgiveness in Jesus Christ because any pretense to be fine morally spiritually on our own merits it is deadly any choosing of my own moral checklist to say I'm fine it's deadly to myself and for those of us in spiritual leadership to others as well does mean any spiritual or religious leader who's listening to this should be sobered by the warning. I know I am. But actually, that does explain why Jesus is so fierce here. You see, these Pharisees were dangerous to others, and the Son of God really cares when people are being given false hope, or being led astray, led away from the cleansing that they need in Jesus. Just because they're being told if you, if you recycle plastic and buy fair trade coffee, you'll be fine. That's point two. The saints thinking they're clean in God's sight. Now, it's pretty intense in here. Imagine what it was like in the dinner party I mean, imagine the atmosphere, the kind of (laughs) frostiness. And it seems like, for our third point, verse 45, it seems like one of the lawyers wants to kind of break the ice, just tone it down a bit. And so he interjects and kind of says, steady on, steady on, Jesus. I'm sure you're not intending to criticize everyone in the room here. Surely you're not lumping us lawyers and scribes, these kind of experts in the Bible. You're not lumping us into this pronouncement of woe and judgment, are you? That's verse 45. Then verse 46, Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers also. Again, Jesus is incensed at the effect these religious experts are having on others. Just look at verse 45 and 52, which kind of start and end the first and last woes to the scholars. 46, he says to them Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Or verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Again, it's a kind of hypocrisy he's pointing out, but it's a different flavor of hypocrisy, isn't it? It's not the problem of the Pharisees thinking that a small amount of outward obedience means I'm fine with God. Well, the error of the scholars, is, is to, who are Bible experts, kind of scribes, lawyers in, in God's law, The error is to treat God's word like it's an academic exercise in which they themselves do not need to respond in obedience and trust. So verse 46, they can precisely define for others what they need to do to keep God's law, but they don't seek to obey it themselves or help others. In verse 52, they have access to the key of knowledge. That is, they're experts in the Bible which testifies to how you get eternal life, points to Jesus and points to the saviour king of Israel and his atoning death, but they will not enter themselves personally. They will not humble themselves to trust in him. And so they end up hindering those who are wanting to know. Again, this approach to God's word is alive and well today. Sadly, not so much on the streets, but on, in some of our major denominations some of the major divinity faculties in the West, where the idea that study of scripture would be to make us wise for salvation, that the aim of of studying God's word is is to be led to trust in Christ personally, well, that idea is often seen as passé, naive, old-fashioned, fundamentalist, Bible belt kind of stuff. Striking. lots of theology departments across the West have have shifted from true theology, where you you study God and what he says, to other other approaches, whether it's comparative religion or anthropology or sociology of religion, effectively shifting the focus from what God says about how we can be saved to what people do in religious contexts, what people think. Don't get me wrong here, I'm not against academic theology or theological colleges or divinity faculties or Christian scholarship. I'm massively blessed by it. I think an anti-intellectual spirit doesn't help um, the church. But nevertheless, if Jesus was invited to the dining rooms or the SCRs or common rooms of divinity faculties across this and other nations, the question he would have over dinner is why you haven't entered... Won't you turn and trust in me to enter eternal life through the door that only Jesus can open? And if you don't enter yourself, then you end up shutting it for others. And actually, there's a painful irony with these lawyers that Jesus points out. Uh, In verse 48, they're they're helping to build and honour the tombs of former prophets. That is, these people, actually, they love the tradition. They love the past institutions, the past preachers. They kind of share in this uh, hagiography of the great prophets of the old times, whilst, of course, ignoring the prophet who's standing right in front of them, the Lord Jesus. It's actually quite a a clever tactic. You praise the people of the past because they can't call to repentance whilst ignoring Jesus in the present. And again, his warning is stark. Our time is up. Let me conclude. Jesus, across this chapter, is warning his opponents. He's saying, look, for each of you, each different flavor of opposition, if you will not turn and put your trust in me, you're not going to be okay on the final day. And those whom you influence are not going to be okay. Whether you tell yourself in skepticism or self-righteousness or scholarship, whether you tell yourself you're fine, I'm telling you you're not. So, of course, it's a warning to anyone who's holding Jesus at arm's length. But as I said at the start, Luke is also writing to encourage us as Christians. He's writing, as with all of Luke, to to help us grow in our certainty. What can we be certain of from this passage? Well, it's very clear that Jesus is a man of integrity. That's clear all across his life. He, he doesn't have one outward thing and a different thing on the inside. Jesus' teaching and his life stands up to scrutiny in a way the arguments here of his opponents really don't. His life has integrity. There's dozens and he sees through them. Think about the arguments they've said. Claiming that Jesus is working for Satan when he's just cast out a demon, it doesn't make any sense. Claiming that he should give more signs when he's just done one, and he's promised to rise from the dead, it doesn't make any sense. Claiming to be clean enough for God, claiming to be in God's good books just by doing some outward rituals, whilst ignoring the the messenger from God who offers forgiveness and cleansing, it doesn't make any sense. Studying the key to eternal life in the scriptures and not following it, it doesn't make sense. And yet it happens over and over again. So Jesus this morning says, don't be surprised if you come across that as we go out into the harvest field. And don't be thrown by that. It can actually be pretty intimidating, this kind of opposition. We're going to think about that more next week. Please do come back next week. It's much more positive next week. Next week, Jesus is going to gather his disciples and tell them how to react in the face of this hostility. He's going to tell us not to be afraid and not to be silenced. But for now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to have eyes that work spiritually. Please help us to see Jesus for who he really is, Just to see ourselves as who we really are, people in need of forgiveness. And we do pray that our lives would be filled with his light. Please would we have lives that shine out with the truth and the beauty and the love and the grace that only Jesus can, be, can provide And we pray that when we face those who reject Jesus, help us not to be surprised, help us not to be thrown by that. And please, Lord, we pray we would graciously keep witnessing to him. In Jesus' name, amen.